Hero of the Frozen River by Claire Safran. After the tragic crash of Air Florida's Flight 90 into Washington's Potomac River, an unforgettable scene was played out in the dark, icy waters. Twice, a balding, middle-aged, average man had a chance to save himself. Twice, he chose instead to save someone else. And then, he disappeared. Air Florida's Flight 90 sat like a stranded bird in a snow-blinded world. Through the plane windows, little could be seen of Washington's National Airport. Occasionally, when an icy blast of wind parted the curtain of thick snow, passengers could make out snowplows clearing runways and workmen spraying the wings and fuselage with glycol solution, an anti-icing agent. The scheduled takeoff time, 2.15pm on January 13, 1982, came and went. Passengers fidgeted. A baby cried. When an hour had passed, some men made jokes. At least we ought to have drinks on the house, one said. The laughter was nervous, but a few people breathed easier at the sound of one man's rumbling laugh, a laugh that seemed to say everything would be all right. Arland Williams laughed easily and often. As his mother says, he loved life and always knew how to have a good time. Williams was 46, divorced, balding, with a neatly trimmed, more salt-than-pepper moustache and beard. On weekends, he relaxed with his two children, sometimes loading them into a van for a camping trip. As a senior government bank examiner, making a perpetual circuit of banks in half a dozen states, Williams had air travel down to a routine. Always he took a seat in the rear, the safest part of the plane, he said. He'd fasten his seatbelt and then catch up on his reading. At 3.37pm, the Boeing 737 was cleared for takeoff. As it waited its turn, 16th in line, ice began to form again on its wings. Ice is a menace, can make a plane too heavy, distort airflow round the wings, confuse flight instruments. Arland was just average, says his mother, and Williams used the same kind of modest words about himself. In a family album is a letter he wrote at nine to his grandmother, telling her that he was doing well at school and getting average marks. Yet he was special to the people who knew him because he cared so deeply for them. He had a talent too for finding pleasure in everyday things, perhaps because as a young boy he seemed close to losing them. When he was five, he would wake up in the night with a terrible pain in his right leg. He'd struggle not to cry out, but sometimes the pain was too strong and his screams broke through. It took five years before doctors discovered the cause, a rare, non-malignant tumour of the hip bone that required surgery. After the operation, Arland admitted that he'd been scared. He hadn't talked of his fear before, and he never mentioned it again. The jet roared down the runway at 3.59pm. It shuddered as it took off and struggled to gain altitude. In one of the rear seats, Joseph Stiley, a businessman and pilot, sensed that Flight 90 wasn't climbing correctly. We're not going to make it, he said to the woman sitting next to him. The plane managed to clear two of the bridges across the Potomac as the pilots fought to lift it. Suddenly, it seemed to stall. We're going down, the co-pilot said. Grimly, the pilot answered, I know it. On New Year's Day, Arland had told Carol Biggs, the woman he planned to marry, I'm not going to live very long. 
Perhaps he had a premonition. Perhaps he was feeling the stress of the most difficult assignment of his career. For six months, he'd been examining a troubled bank in Florida. His findings could mean ruined careers for its management. Harland always agonised over the pain of others. These people's lives are falling apart, he said. He had been in Washington to talk with officials at government banking headquarters about the bank. A few nights before Arlen boarded Air Florida Flight 90, he telephoned Carol. It was one of the coldest nights of the century, and the heating system wasn't working properly in his hotel room. It's cold, he told Carol. So cold. At 4.01pm, Flight 90 slammed into the 14th Street Bridge. The sound was so loud, said a witness. I couldn't hear myself scream. The jet sliced the tops off several cars, then breaking in two, it plunged into the ice-choked Potomac River. For a moment, there was an eerie, heart-stopping hush. Then pandemonium, the cries of the dying and injured, the wail of police cars, fire engines, ambulances. Men and women watched helplessly as the fuselage, rows of passengers still buckled inside, sank into the icy river. Arland Williams came of age during the 1950s in Mattoon, Illinois, whose farming hinterland stretches flat and seemingly forever. He took Peggy Sullivan to a dance, and later they parked at a nearby lake, waiting for the rest of their crowd to join them for a party. Peggy's window was open, and suddenly she felt a stranger's hand on her arm. A huge man, obviously drunk, told her to get out of the car. Sit tight, Alan said. He opened his door and walked round to the man. Cigarette, he suggested calmly. After some quiet talk, Arland persuaded the stranger to leave. Arland was understated, Peggy remembers, but he knew how to act in an emergency. Moments after the crash of Flight 90, only the broken-off tail section remained afloat. Four people, two men and two women, clung to the jagged metal. Then someone else burst out of the water. Priscilla Torado, in shock, her leg broken, her husband and infant lost. Patricia Felch and Joe Stiley pulled her to their small circle of the living. Treading water, these five dazed survivors held on. Some had broken arms, others broken legs. The lungs of two had been collapsed by the impact of the crash. We're all going to die, someone said. Patricia Felch remembers Priscilla screaming, Where's my baby? Where's my baby? The roar of a police helicopter was heard at 4.20pm. The pilot, Donald Usher, hovered low, coming in close enough to see that one man seemed more alert than the others. From mid-chest up, his body was out of the water, his posture erect. He was balding, Usher recalls, with a grey moustache and sideburns. The helicopter crew first dropped a lifeline to Bert Hamilton, who was treading water about three metres from the tail. He took it, and as the others watched, was carried a hundred metres to the Virginia shore. The crew returned and aimed the line at the balding man. He caught it, but instead of wrapping it round himself, he passed the line to flight attendant Kelly Duncan, the only crew member to survive. She took the line, wrapped it under her arms and held tight as she was carried to shore. Always reaching for challenges, Arland enrolled in 1953 at the Citadel, a military college in Charlestown, South Carolina. There, he struggled with the rigorous discipline of classroom and drill field, 
learning to do almost everything, even to eat, at attention. Proud of making it through his four years, he always wore his citadel ring and never lost that ramrod posture. He was at his best under pressure, recalls Marion Rivers, a former colleague at the bank. He always asked for the most difficult assignments and thrived under deadlines. I sometimes thought of him as a frustrated war hero. There was room for only one helicopter to manoeuvre between the two Potomac bridges, so the lone chopper raced back, this time with two lifelines. One line was aimed at the balding man. Once more he caught it. Did he think then, even briefly, of his own chances of survival? He must have known that time was passing, strength ebbing, hope fading. But again, he passed the line on. Joe Stiley, the most severely injured survivor, slipped it round himself, then grabbed Priscilla Torado, who clung to him. Just before the helicopter moved off, Patricia Felch grasped the second line. Exhausted, in shock and pain, Stiley felt his hold on Priscilla slipping, and Patricia could feel herself losing her grip on her lifeline. As the chopper carried them towards shore, the women fell back into the icy water. With his divorce two years in the past, Williams was optimistic about the future. I'm starting again, he told people. In Atlanta, he was surrounded by a circle of friends, and he was looking forward to his marriage to Carol. Hold on, people on the bridge shouted. The tail was sinking slowly, but they could still make out the sixth man's head and hands. The chopper had returned to drop a line to Priscilla Torado as she struggled to stay afloat. She caught it, but her strength was gone. She was about to go under when a courageous onlooker, Lenny Skutnik, plunged into the freezing river to bring her to shore. The helicopter came in low over Patricia Felch, almost touching the ice. Rescue officer Jean Windsor clutched the barely conscious woman and held on to her as she was carried outside the helicopter to safety. It was 4.30pm, 29 minutes since the crash, 10 minutes since the helicopter's first trip, and the balding man's turn had come at last. The chopper turned once more towards the sinking tail, its two-man crew eager to meet that man in the water, to tell him they had never before seen such selfless courage. They strained for signs of the hero of Flight 90. But the balding man was gone. Later, telling his wife about it, Windsor wept. He could have gone on the first trip, Pilot Usher said, but he put everyone else ahead of himself. Everyone. Was Arland Williams indeed that extraordinary sixth person in the water? Of the 79 people whose bodies were recovered, he is the one who best fits the evidence. He died of drowning rather than impact and did not have the kind of injuries that would have kept him from doing what that sixth man did. Although television cameras were quickly on the scene, they filmed from a distance at dusk. In some frames, you can make out the back of the man's head and his hands and you can see a wristwatch. When Arlen's body was recovered from the river, his watch was still running. When it was returned to his family, it was ticking still. Remember me. Remember me. Yet questions linger. Was it really Arland in the water? Why did he do it? Since we may never know for sure, perhaps the most important words to remember about that man are the ones Virginia Williams used to describe her son. For isn't it, in times of danger, the just average man who saves us all? (laughs) 
For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.